Ephesians chapter 4. Um, we turn there and we've been here for some time. And I want to hone in on four verses that I told Amy uh, in the car are simple verses in their content. They're not complicated. They're used a lot. You know, people preach a lot of sermons about this concept. And so it'd be easy for you, once we get into it for a minute, to say, oh yeah, I've heard a hundred messages on this idea about putting the old man to death and living in the new man. I've heard that all before. Flip off, go to my grocery list or my errands I need to run or my work that's coming up on Tuesday or I've got an extra day off. Don't do that today. Hang in there. Don't become so familiar with this idea that you run past it as if you, in your pride, think you know it and you have it and you don't need it anymore. This is revolutionary, we might say, for life, for practical living. We're about to get into a section of Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 25, that is proverbial, straightforward, pithy, truthful statements. Don't lie. Work hard. Don't steal. Don't speak evil against your brother. Don't let sun go down on your wrath. All of these things sound good, believe it or not, to the ears of those who have spent most of their life in moral, religious, southern culture. Right? And therefore, it leads them straight to hell. Because they do verses 25 and following as if it is a list by which they find approval with God. And when you treat it that way, you're headed to hell. If you skip verses 17 through 24 and run down to verse 25, as I warned us not to do, you will go to hell as a self-righteous, good old boy. They will stand at your funeral and talk about what a good man you were. But you will know nothing of Christ. And your righteousness is not enough. I don't care if it exceeds the Pharisees. In your own strength, you will fail. You cannot live up to Christ's standard. And verses 20 through 24 tell us He hasn't called us to perform in our strength and earn His pleasure, His love, His relationship, but rather, through His Son, Jesus Christ, God Almighty has come into relationship with you and with me and has given us Christ's righteousness as a free gift of His grace. And in that same act has taken on Him the unrighteous acts and deeds of our evil hearts and has crucified them for us. That's the gospel. The gospel is the only hope you have, and that is that you are not enough, but Christ is enough. That's your hope, church. That's your neighbor's hope, church. That's your 16-year-old's hope, church. Is not, clean your act up and don't embarrass me. But rather, cling to Christ and plead with God that He save you. By Christ's merit alone. That's our hope. That's what we live in. 
Ephesians 4, verse 20, but, but, that is not the way you learned Christ. What does he mean? He means you haven't learned Christ by walking in the futility of your mind. He said that in verse 17. Which has come about, this futility of your mind has come about because you are darkened in your understanding. That statement hinges on the fact that you are alienated, separated. The word alienated, take it like you read it in the English, means you are from another. You are alienated from God. You are from another. You don't belong to God. We use the term illegal alien in political terms because people who come here illegally into this country, who migrate here without the approval of the government, are illegal outsiders. They're aliens. Alien means they weren't born here, right? You have legal aliens and illegal aliens. In the spiritual realm, we are all alienated and different from and separated from God. We are aliens. We're dark in our understanding. Why? Because we're alienated from God. Why? Because we are ignorant. Not ignorant in the sense of in. In our, in our human senses, we are dumb, but rather in our spiritual mind, we are dead. We're ignorant. We're darkened in our understanding. We're aliens from God. We are ignorant spiritually. Why? You have to keep asking the question, why? And the ultimate reason we said last week is due to the hardness of our heart. The heart in the Bible is the seat of man. It is who you really are. It is, the heart is not the vessel which pumps blood in biblical terms, but rather it is your mind, your intelligence, your will, and your emotion all in one. It's your, who you are. Okay? In your truest essence, without your pretty clothes and pretty makeup, it's who you are. In our day, it's popular to talk about it as character. Right? Character. Who you are when no one's looking. That's who you really are, by the way. Sitting in the pews, everybody looks good. But when the lights go out, who are you? That's who the heart is. And your heart, in your nature, is dead. It is hard. It is impenetrable. It is worthless. It doesn't need to be brought to out of sickness. It needs to be transformed. The heart of who you are needs to be transformed. How? As the new covenant says in Jeremiah 31, He will take away your heart of stone and give you what? A heart of flesh. That's the essence, that's the promise of the new covenant, folks is not that God will work with you the best He can to make you the very best you can possibly be, but rather He will destroy who you are and make you a new man with a fleshly heart. If all He's doing is making you the best you can be, you're not good enough and you still won't be good enough. That's the point. And so we talked about the tree. That's Jesus' analogy. That's not original with me. 
Jesus, walking across the countryside, stopped and told his disciples, good trees bear good fruit, and bad trees bear bad fruit. Good trees don't bear bad fruit, and bad trees don't bear good fruit. Therefore, if your fruit is bad, you must what? Cut it at the root. Cut it off. And you must become, be made into a new tree. A fruitful tree. A good tree. It's not about changing behavior. That's what we talked about last week. Though that's what we so often want to do is change our behavior, be a better, more kind, more gracious, more loving you. But that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not you being you, but rather you being transformed by the righteousness of Christ into a new man. Into a new person. Into a new humanity. So we, we, we understand that that's not how you learned Christ. This being hard in the heart and this being greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's not how you learned Christ. I have a very simple sermon today. Three points, very simply put. This. Number one, and we'll run through it and then I'm going to explain it. Straight from the text. Number one, verse 22, put off your old self. Number two, in, verse, in the text, in verse 23, Renew your minds. And three, put on the new self. Simple, right? Let's close the Bibles and go home. That's it. Why are you looking at me like that? That's not so easy. It's not, is it? Matter of fact, Tuesday morning after the long weekend, it'll be harder. Because when the alarm clock goes off, men, the laziness created by the curse from the garden will set in. Ah, hit the snooze button. Call in sick. Take a day off. And women, the curse will kick in as your elbow so gently goes into his side saying, get your lazy rear end out of this bed and go make me money. Right? You want to rule over him. You want to tell him what to do. Make him a better him. Put a bit in his mouth and treat him like a horse. And then you wonder why he doesn't love, seem to love you so much. Right? It's who we are in our nature. Women want to control the men and men want to be lazy and get out from under the control of women. Men go to the coffee shop, sit around, talk about women, how controlling and manipulative they are. Women get together, go shopping, and talk about how lazy and lack of leadership is displayed in their husbands. If my husband would just be a better him, right? We don't need that, do we? What we need, what we all need, is to follow the three steps prescribed by us to us by Paul. Put off the old man, renew the mind, and put on the new man. Is it statements or is it the commands? That's the first question we have to answer in this outline. 
Is Paul telling us what to do every day, or is he saying what has already happened to you? See, that's the question that some of us have struggles with, because there are times when Paul uses this. By the way, these are infinitives. All of these are infinitives. They, they can be statements of fact, and they can be commands for us to follow. They can fall in either category. So the simple grammar of it doesn't really help us. How do we know what Paul's telling us? I think the best way to understand the Bible is to let the Bible interpret the Bible. Would you agree with that? Scripture interprets Scripture. So we're going to do some turning today. And we're going to turn specifically in Paul's letters to see what he means by put off the old man, renew the mind, put on the new man. What is this? Is he saying what's already happened or is he telling us to do something? Okay? And hopefully we'll have a good answer by the end of this. I, we read Colossians 3. Hold your place in Ephesians chapter 4 and go to Colossians 3. The 17 verses were read for a purpose because these are companion letters written from the pen of Paul about the same time from the jail cell, which he is in residence of, waiting for his trial. He writes these two letters to two churches, Coloss being a church he has not founded and has not really visited but desires to spend time with them. And Ephesus, a church he's been away from for about seven years when he pins the letter to the Ephesians. So he's writing companion letters. Okay? There's a lot of similarities in both letters. If you read Colossians and Ephesians, you start to see themes developed right similarly to one another. Sometimes Ephesians expands the theme. Sometimes Colossians expands the theme. If you look at Ephesians 4, we get, hold your place in Colossians, and we're going to go back and forth. If you look at verses 20 through 24, it's very concise. But that's not how you learned Christ, assuming that you've learned about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. We preached that verse last week, those two. But what does he say in verse 22? To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Hmm. Very concise. Lots packed into that sentence. In Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17, he expands on what he means. So, Colossians 3. Look what it says in verse 5. In verse 5 it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord's forgiving you also, so you also must forgive. Put on love. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is the description of the new man. It's all here in Colossians chapter 3, being expanded for us, being included for us, so we might understand exactly what he means. If we look at the language of Ephesians 4, verse 22, to put off your old self, it's speaking an analogy about taking clothes off. 
This is the metaphor. This is the picture. Get undressed from your old self. And when you do this, what are you undressing from? You're undressing from your former manner of life. That's all of you. And what is your former manner of life? It is, look what it says, corrupt through deceitful desires. Sexual corruption is the analogy. Take off that junk. Take it off like a pair of old clothes. It's the former way of life. In the middle centuries in the Isles of England, there was a practice. Some of you may know of it. It's used a lot to describe exactly what I'm talking about here. When a man murdered another, he was sentenced to death. They devised the most cruel and long form of death imaginable. They could have beheaded them. They could have hung them. But they wanted to prove a point. So they took the dead carcass and tied it to the murderer so that he couldn't rid himself of it. And he carried that dead flesh on his back. And the decaying flesh would become infested with disease as it rotted, which would then get into the living human and most of the time kill them in a slow and agonizing death. Death breeds death. Paul says, take off that dead carcass. If you tote that carcass around, it will infect you. You will inf be infected with the disease of death. Even the new man, which is alive in you, will be overshadowed at times by the dead man that you lug around. You, some of you get the grotesqueness of this, right? I mean, you can imagine... It's hard, but you can imagine toting around a rotting, decaying, stinking corpse, which you can never be rid of. First thing I see about putting off the old man is that it is done. It's done. I see it as a past event in some ways. That dead man can never kill you. He can never take you. He can never consume you. How do I know this? How do I see this? Well, if we look at, here at Colossians 3, we see something amazing in the explanation. He lists out the earthly one desires, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked. Do you see his past tense? In a large sense, the old man is dead 
He is crucified. He no longer has power over you. You once had to live like an old dead man. Now you don't have to live that way any longer. Why? Because we have, look, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's already happened. At salvation, you put on the new man. You took off the old clothes of sin and death, and you put on the new clothes of righteousness and life at salvation. It's past tense. It's happened. The old man cannot kill you. The wrath of God which was against that old man is consumed in the person of Christ. God is no longer angry at you as a believer. Okay? Second thing we know about this outline is that it is happening. It has happened, and it is happening. See, I think Paul wrote these verbs for us in the infinitive form, forcing us to not make a choice between past and present and future, but rather that we would understand that salvation is all of that. Past, present, and future. So I just finished telling you that the old man was put off and the new man was put on in Christ. Past tense event. It already occurred. You are saved. Now I'm telling you, you are being saved. Because these are commands. Every day you are to rise and put off the old self. And renew your mind and put on the new self. Paul's instructive on this in another letter, Romans chapter 6. Turn there with me. He gives clear instruction here in Romans chapter 6 to exactly what I'm saying to you. You have been saved. The old man is dead. He's been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians chapter 5. It's past tense. It's done. But then look at Romans 6. 4 verse 5. If we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self, the flesh, the old man, the body of sin, was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. He was crucified with Him so that it would be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must what consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's done, but it's being done. Paul's talking in the present tense now, isn't he? Not about a past crucifixion, but about a current, ongoing victory over sin. 
you must in your mind come to the terms that you are dead to sin and alive to God. Consider it to be so. And he goes on, let therefore sin not reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but what? Present your members to God for righteousness. You have been saved and you are being saved. When Paul says, put off the old man and put, renew your mind and put on the new man, what he's saying is, that happened past tense when Christ saved you. And it happens every day when you consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God and you present yourself to God for righteousness and not to sin. You're being saved. But it's not only past and present. No, it's future. The glory and the hope of the gospel is that those in Christ will be saved. This action of putting off the old man and renewing the mind and putting on the new man leads ultimately to us being in the very likeness of God in true righteousness. Standing before Him one day, we will no longer be ashamed, but we, like little children, will look at Him and see ourselves, and He will look at His bride and see His reflection. So what John says, then we will see Him as we are seen. We will be saved. We will be glorified. We will be made like God, like Christ, in His image. That's what if, uh, Colossians chapter 3 says in the companion passage. If you look here, it says that when you put on then as God's cho chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you, and above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Look what it says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Right? Renew the mind. There it is. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wow. Wow. That is past tense, present tense, but where's the future? Look back at Colossians 3, verse 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth. For you have died in the past and your life is presently hidden with Christ in God when Christ who is your life appears, then in the future you also will appear with Him in glory. Past, present, future. So, the old man was put aside at salvation and the new man was put on like a new garment of righteousness. And every day 
we rise from our beds and the first duty of a Christian is to consider himself dead to sin and alive to God and present his members to God for righteousness and not to sin. That's an everyday process. And one day after that process comes to an end, we will appear in glory like our glorious Savior in His image. Salvation is past, present, and future. Now, that unnerves some of you. Because you grew up all of your life thinking about salvation as a nursery rhyme prayer which you recite after me. Once it's done, you've been placed in the water of baptism, all is okay. We don't have to contemplate it ever again. We're saved. The doctrine of once saved, always saved is not biblical. It's not true. It was never taught in the church, the mainline church, until the 1900s. Clue, when a doctrine that important shows up 1900 years after Christ, you ought to ask questions. When it springs onto the stage for the first time, in all its glory and luster, you should say, wait a minute. What about the 1,900 years worth of Christians that lived before and never knew this? Never taught this way. Never conceived of salvation this way. As a nursery rhyme prayer, which we recite after the pastor, get dunked in water, handed a Bible, join the church, and now we don't worry about how we live. And we don't worry about whether we're being transformed into the image of God. Who cares? I'm in. I got my ticket. Salvation's not a ticket to the orchestra. Salvation is ears to love the orchestra. That's what salvation is. And so, real Christians are like those who really love the orchestra playing. It's music. And they run to the theater to get the front row seat because they want to hear what's being played and be transformed into its very image. They're not people who walk around with a ticket in their pocket on the outside of the street thumping their chest about how they already listened to the orchestra. And I heard the music. And I once went there. That's foolish talk. Those who have truly had the old man put away and put on the new man... They sit at the feet of the orchestra in its pit every day. And they listen to the sweet tunes that come forth. If you don't love it, you're not in it. If you're not in it, you won't be saved by it. Put off the old man, Paul says, in the renewing of your mind by the Spirit so that the new man is put on. What I've described to you without using the theological verbiage, and I'm going to use it now, is justification, sanctification, and glorification. Salvation is contained in three essential parts. You must be justified, given right standing before God. That was done. At the cross, it was done. Christ died for sinners. 
justifying the ungodly. That's what he did. He died. And you died with him. If you're in Christ, your old man died at the cross. The final word of his life was spoken when the nails were driven in the Savior's hands. Okay? Positionally, before God at the cross, he clothed us in righteousness. He saved us in one foundational event. That is played out and lived out through the process of sanctification. Once you come to salvation in time, knowing Christ as your Savior and having a relationship with Him, you now live like He lived. You attend the orchestra daily. You don't talk about it like it was an event you went to in the past. But you say, I'm here now. I'm being saved. I was having a discussion with Jennifer Campbell before church, and she's de- she was dealing with this with her little ones. Aren't you glad your children are here at 9 o'clock and they're being taught this kind of theology as little tights? Don't you wish somebody taught you when you were 9 years old what I'm teaching you today? It has saved you the foolishness of thinking you were saved all these years. As some of you are trusting in a past event with no present reality. And if you really trust in the past event, there is a reality today you are with Christ. The next time somebody asks you, are you a Christian? Don't recite to them a nursery rhyme event that you took place 25 years ago. Tell them, yes, I am saved because I know Christ. I am with Christ today. Today I have a relationship with Jesus. You shouldn't have to run to an event that happened 25 years ago. You should be able to talk about today. That's sanctification. If you can't talk about today, the past event is in question. And if the past event's in question and you're not being transformed into the image of Christ, renewing the mind and putting on the new man, don't bank on glorification. This whole revivalism stuff they showed up in the church about 1900 that was sold to people it was a bill of goods it's not true it's not biblical stop believing it your soul's in jeopardy people walk down aisles recite nursery rhymes think they're saved they give in in short order, because they're not truly saved, live like the world, always confident of the past event they did, never thinking about what Christ has done, really. And they die and stand before the judgment seat at their death. And God says, depart from me. I never knew you. And they object on the grounds of their activity. When someone calls your Christianity into question and you get all puffed up and prideful about what you do, they have a right to question your Christianity. When you list off ten events that you've done in the last week that prove that you're a Christian, you need to rethink the gospel. The only reason you're saved is by the grace of God. Never, ever take confidence in what you have done. 
only in what he has done. What he has done bears fruit, and it's beautiful, and people see it. But don't take confidence in the fruit. Take confidence in him. Because in seasons, the fruit may wither at times in you. It may not look good, but if the root is good, it's still good. Okay? Have, have been saved, and being saved, will be saved. The old man was put off. My mind was renewed. I put on the new man in the past. Every day, the old man is put off. The mind is renewed. The new man is put on every day in sanctification. And one day, when we cross death's cold river, the old man will shed from us completely. Never to be seen again. Never to rise again. And the mind will be in the form and image of Christ, which will glow with the radiance of His glory forever in perfect sanctification, glorification. Don't you want that day? John Stott, I've been reading Basic Christian. He wrote the book Basic Christianity. The guy who wrote one the foremost uh, biography on his life, he wrote it in 2007, I think. His life wasn't done yet, so he got to read it and approve of it. <laughs> Titled it, fittingly, Basic Christian. That's what John Stott, that's who he was. An Anglican, evangelical, expositional preacher. You can listen to his sermons. Go to All Souls Church. Log in and listen to, there's thousands of sermons there for you to listen to. He was a giant in the evangelical world. This year, just a few short weeks ago, at 90 years of age, he crossed the river of death. For a day and a half, he and his closest companions, he wasn't married ever, he never had children, all his family's dead, it's just him and his disciples. Gathered around him, and he asked, one last request, play Handel's Messiah until I die. They described the scene, his disciples, as he began to light up with the glory, a shine. Every now and then between shallow breaths, he would look over and say, it's glory, it's glory. Nothing else until finally he was dead. I tell you that to say, I've stood at the bedside of dying saints. It is glory to watch them put on for the first time and final time the likeness of the image of Christ. To put it on. To be shed of the sinfulness of this world. And to be in the image of their Lord. It is a beautiful thing. And I have stood at the bed of dying unbelievers. And it is ugly. As they gasp and grasp to the only life they will ever live, which is this earthly life. And they die only to face further death. What I'm saying to you is, your hope, your only hope, is not you. It is Christ. Being in Him makes all the difference. 
we're going to get to the practical things. We're going to talk about all that. I'm going there. I promise. Start next week. But before we got there, I wanted to preach this sermon, and I want to conclude it this way. What has happened in that revivalism spirit is the navigator's train has been reversed. Some of you are familiar with the navigator's ministry and their train diagram. It's a beautiful thing. The engine of the train is reason, the mind. The coal car that feeds the engine is faith. And the caboose is emotion. In revivalism, in the widespread evangelical world of our day, the engine is emotion. They think it's being fed by faith, and it will drag the mind. The train doesn't work that way. The Bible does not care how you feel. To put it bluntly, it cares if you have the mind of Christ. Renew your mind in the Spirit. Romans 12, verse 2. Renewing the mind through the Word of God. That's the concept. You say, how do I rise every morning and put off the old man and put on the new man? Through the Word of God. Why? Because the Word of God is the truth. And it is in the Word of God which you meet the truth, Jesus Christ. When you let your emotions control it, you might meet anyone and anything and think it is good. But when you let the biblical concept of the mind driving the train and faith feeding it, the emotion comes. Don't worry about the emotion. I don't want emotionless Christianity. I don't want dead, dry orthodoxy. I believe emotion will come if the mind is engaged in the things of Christ and the things of heaven. Emotions will come. They're, they're brought along. But if emotions are in charge, the train's off the track. It may never bring the mind into submission. The will, the heart, into submission. So preaching here focuses on the mind first and emotions second. If you get a heavy dose of emotion, you can be led anywhere. I whip you into a big enough frenzy, you drink Kool-Aid with me. But if I focus on that text which contains the truth and brings us into relationship with the man of truth, the God of truth, Jesus Christ, the God-man, then the emotion will come. True faith will be springing forth with the fruit of love and devotion. Have no fear of that. Have no fear of that. Say, well, John Stott had a great death. A, a man died the way, you know, the saints of the Bible did. He got old, he laid down, he went to be with his fathers. That's a beautiful epitaph on the life. How did his Christian life start? He sat in a sermon much like this. He had the question put to him, who is Christ to you? He had never heard that question. He went home at the ripe age of 18, knelt down next to his bed, and said, Jesus Christ you are the Lord of my mind 
and my heart. I trust in you. He got in the bed and went to sleep. He later was questioned years later. What'd you feel? He didn't even understand the question. What do you mean? What did, what did, you know, what happened? How did it feel when that happened? I went to sleep. No bells went off. No whistles were blown. No great parades. No emotional sappiness. The mind was in subjection. The heart and mind were in subjection to Christ as Lord. And he went to sleep. And then he lived to 90 by faith. Don't hang your hat on emotions. Because you shed some tears, because you felt something, it might be indigestion. It might not be the spirit at all. I'm not mocking emotions. I have them. I'm saying they don't drive the train. That's what the text says. He doesn't say, put off the old man and get real excited about it and then put on the new man. He doesn't say, put off the old man and then get in the spirit and then put on the new man. He says, put off the old man and renew your mind and put on the new spirit, the new man. The link between the old and the new being put off and put on is the mind through the Word of God 